0: Hello and welcome to The Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 126 of The Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with former Walt Disney Imagineer Joe Lanzicero. Joe began with Disney in 1979, working as a feature animator on some films that you know and love, like The Fox and the Hound and The Great Mouse Detective, among others. He then transitioned into Walt Disney Imagineering in 1987, where he spent the next nearly three decades of his career, eventually rising to the ranks of a creative senior vice president. And during those nearly three decades, Joe helped to develop countless attractions and lands around the world that you know and love at Disneyland and Walt Disney World, plus a significant amount of work at Hong Kong Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Resort, including two attractions that we'll discuss in this episode Mystic Manor over at Hong Kong Disneyland and the Tokyo Disney Sea version of Tower of Terror. Joe also worked on Disney Cruise Line, he worked on Toontown, he has done so much throughout his career, and I am really excited to share this conversation with you as I chat with Joe about his career, about a few of his projects, and ask him some other questions about what it's like to be an Imagineer. And Before we kick things off formally, I also of course want to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, WDW Magazine, I am both an author and a subscriber to WDW Magazine and you can learn more by clicking on the link in the show notes of this episode or by heading to ImagineerPodcast.com. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer Podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer Podcast. When Walt Disney started up WET Enterprises in 1952, he recruited a number of animators to help develop Disneyland. And while Walt passed away over a decade before today's special guest joined the company, I feel confident he would have loved the work of animator-turned-imagineer Joe Lanzicero. Just a few days after graduating from CalArts in 1979, Joe began working at Disney as a feature animator for movies like The Fox and the Hound and The Great Mouse Detective. Less than a decade later, Joe made the jump to Walt Disney Imagineering, where he eventually rose to the rank of a creative senior vice president. Perhaps what's most amazing about Joe is that his projects literally span the globe. He developed attractions at Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Tokyo Disney Resort, Hong Kong Disneyland, and Disney Cruise Line. After nearly three decades at Imagineering, Joe retired from Disney in 2015, but his work continues today through his own company, Lanza Creative. Needless to say, I am both honored and delighted to welcome Joe Lyantissero to Imagine Your Podcasts. Joe, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Matt. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Of course. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. As I said just a moment ago, you've developed so many amazing attractions around the world and movies beyond the attractions as well. So I'm excited to ask a bit about. A little bit of each of, of all of it. We can't cover everything today, but some of my my favorite uh, attractions of yours and projects that you worked on. But I want to start by actually going back, because I find it so interesting to get to the mm-hmm. um, the sort of early take of what interested you in in uh, in this career. And I know you also um, kind of grew up down the road, essentially from from Disneyland, not too far from Disney. You were a big uh, Disney fan as a kid, and. I, I grew up as a, a fan of Disney as well. Of course, I was a big Disney kid. And I'm curious, what about Disney did you fall in love with when you were a kid?
1: Well, I grew up, well, I was born the year after Disneyland opened. Um, so I, I basically grew up with Sunday night was watching Uncle Walt. And of course, on, on the wonderful world of Disney and then later became the wonderful world of color when it became in color. And in fact, I remember I wanted my parents to get a color TV specifically so we could watch the wonderful (laughs) world of color. And they did. And it was so cool. Uh, In fact, we were one of the first people on the block to have a color television. And, you know, the neighbors would come over, especially on Sunday night to watch the wonderful world of Disney. And I loved um, so I, I, I loved Disney as far back as I can remember. But it was always um, both the love of the cartoons and the animation, because as far back as I can remember, I always loved to draw. I still love to draw today. It's one of the things that brings me great pleasure. I carry a sketchbook with me, um, besides the drawing that I do for whatever projects I might be involved in. I just, whenever I'm sitting at a restaurant or on a bench or wherever, the sketchbook comes out and I start toodling. Um, And for me, it's, it's a great way to keep my hand-eye coordination sharp and just to you know document the world uh, through my crazy my crazy lens. I always like to put my little spin on it. So as far back as I can remember, I loved to draw, loved watching Uncle Walt on Sunday nights, grew up, you know, with Disneyland, in fact just a quick little aside. Yeah. Uh, my father was in the arcade business. Uh, he and his brothers had a company called uh, Brothers Amusement, um, and their claim to fame was, which would be, this would be completely, you know, in, uh, in bad taste today. <laughs> but they they did a quick shoot game where two people stood on either side of this, this arcade game, and then the lights came on. They had to do a, a shootout, um, and that was kind of their claim to fame. But um, they were contracted to install the Davy Crockett Arcade at Disneyland.
0: That's awesome. My dad
1: always told the story about going to the, the construction site and came home and um, my dad's only frame of reference for amusement parks. Both my parents came from New York and they grew up with Coney Island. So that was that was his frame of reference. So uh, my mom always told me the story. The dad came home and goes, her name was Rosalie. Rosalie, this guy's crazy. This thing is going to fail, fail, fail. There's no roller coaster. There's no Ferris wheel. He goes, "What is this guy thinking?" <laughs> but I think my dad was just echoing the popular opinion at the time. Um, so boy, was he wrong, as was everyone else, you know. And here, you know, and and I remember when uh, the day when I was finally able. We were doing Toontown, and my my dad and my my mom came to the. They're both passed away now. But uh, they were still alive at the time, and they, they came to, to the opening of Toontown. And I think that was the first time my dad really got that I could make a living doing this crazy, you know, imagineering thing. I mean, I don't know if he ever really, really got it. But that day he stood there. He goes, oh, okay, I get it. This is what you do. <laughs> because, <laughs> he, you know, he was a, he was a depression child, and, and, you know, the idea that somebody can make a living – Doing drawings and creating stuff was just not something that, you know, his mind could get wrapped around. But so that's my long-winded <laughs> explanation of my love for Disney. And we lived in Burbank and, and on the on the hillside of Burbank, there's a hillside of Burbank and then there's kind of the, the flat part of Burbank um, where all the studios are. But um, I remember jumping on my bicycle, you know, and and biking around the studio, you know, trying to peek in, <laughs> and see if I could get a glance of what was going on in there. So you can only imagine how exciting it was for me on um, that first day when I, I finally got to uh, go into the animation studio and, and be a part of something I dreamt about my entire life.
0: I can only imagine that must be true. And honestly, it's... It's interesting you brought up the idea of sort of turning that passion into a career because it was not, I know for the Depression era, it was definitely not a, a, a very pragmatic career to go right. into drawing. And it, it's great that your dad had that realization seeing um, your work on Toontown. When did you figure out that this was something that was more than just a passion, that you didn't just love to draw, but you really wanted to turn it into a career?
1: you know, there was never a time when I, well, actually, I had two loves. I love to draw, I love to build things too. Here we are, we're at the, we're recording this anyway at the Christmas season. I know we're going to be playing this later, but um, I would, I would build these al- a very elaborate um, Christmas displays on my parents' front, front yard with Santa and the elves and my my dad would help me animate them, and I think for like four years in a row, you know, they had like a, a, a civic contest, and we always won at least first or second place, you know. Um, so that was something I always loved to do. Um, I did little eight millimeter animated films, far again going way back. Um, but I also was a drummer. I started playing drums when I was nine years old, and um, and so those were my two passions, you know, drawing and playing drums. Um, and I, and I, I guess I still do both today. I'm actually still in a couple little bands, uh, jazz and blues playing, you know, whenever I can, the pandemic, of course, kind of put the kibosh on it for a while. Right. Um, so, uh, I was actually in a band with uh, a gentleman by the name of John Debney, who has gone on to become a very famous Hollywood, um, composer.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: and, um, and his father, Lou Debney, was a producer and director at the Disney Studio Live Action. Um, I think he was the associate producer on the Mickey Mouse Club. He did, did a bunch of stuff. So Lou always saw me drawing when, he, when I went to, to um, John's house for rehearsals and such. Um, and so we were, we were, our band was actually pretty good. And we actually got a, um, a, a kind of a development thing with Warner Brothers, you know, and they were looking to sign us. Um, And um, I won't go into the the long story. But for various reasons, we didn't get we didn't get the contract. But simultaneously, at the same time, and in this, I'm I'm saying this was divine intervention. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When the contract went south, Lou came to me and said, Hey, Joe, you know, Um, they're starting this character animation program at Cal arts. He goes, would you be interested in submitting a portfolio? And, you know, I had to make that decision. Okay. It doesn't look like I'm going to be a rock and roll star, but I may have an opportunity there at Cal arts. So being an opportunist, I, I put together my, my portfolio, I put in pictures of my crazy Christmas decorations and little snippets from my eight millimeter films. And I I had been doing all the artwork for the high school yearbook. So I put all of that, that in there, too, and um, submitted it. And I was one of, I think, the 15 or 16 of us that made it into that first class. And some of my classmates were Went on to become very famous, <laughs> and like John Lasseter who went on to start Pixar, and Brad Bird who went went to you know write and direct write to Thule and The Incredibles, and John Musker who went on to do Little Mermaid and Aladdin and you know blah 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 all those. So it was an amazing class of students, and. Um, it was great because we we were, you know, we didn't know that we were going to have this opportunity to go on to, at least in the case of john and, and the, both Johns Musker and last year, you know, to literally change the animation world. Um, I don't think I changed the world in any way, but at least I, I've, you know, look, looking at them, I feel like an underachiever, but I, I was given amazing opportunities. And uh, I worked hard. And I think I got to make a little mark on the world as well um but i go i look back on those times at cal arts and they were amazing they were really um we we were we all say we learned as much from each other as we did from the professors and we had some amazing professors up there all of them were were disney artists we had we and then we also had access to all these great lecturing um professors that came in mark davis frank and ollie I mean, when I made it to the studio, you know, my mentor was um Eric Larson, who was one of the, you know, the nine old men. Um, so we really we were, I think, the fir- we were the first group to get the knowledge handed down directly from all those great artists that worked with Walt, which, although I never got to work with Walt or never got to meet Walt, I think was only 10 years old when he passed away. But I certainly heard a lot of stories and got a lot of the the knowledge, you know, secondhand from those who did work with him.
0: Yeah, we want to, I definitely want to bring up a few of them for sure. And you're certainly not an underachiever by any standard because <laughs> your accomplishments are pretty impressive as well. You have a couple of uh, Theme Entertainment Association awards yeah. on your project. So you've got a, a great reputation uh, <laughs> with your work as well. Um, you, I, I know that one of the uh, perhaps most, um, at least influential or uh, uh, notable uh, artists, or <clears throat> you know, folks who worked with Waltz, who you sort of gravitated towards his work, was Mark Davis. Oh, yeah. Um, and you're you're kind of known for for bringing a lot of um, Mark's uh, work, or not not his work, but his um, his legacy, I should say, like in some of his uh, philosophies into um, the present day with a lot of attractions as well. What was it about Mark's work? that attracted you to it um and i guess how would you sort of summarize for those who might not know what mark davis's legacy was at disney because he had a very unique and uh fascinating reputation there yeah
1: well well, first i'm always quick to say i you know i can't (laughs) i i I, I'm, i'm hesitant to really compare myself to mark i mean mark i have i put mark on a pedestal for a number of reasons um he was an amazing one of the all the all those Disney animators were great draftsmen, but he and Milt Call were probably the strongest of them in terms of just really being able to to draw. But more than being able to draw, um, he brought a sense of the two H's I call him. He brought humanity and humor to everything he did for the, the work for the parks, as well as the incredible work he did on the animated features as well. So I became a a big student of Marx. And I I was fortunate to know Mark. And I actually feel like I I was his friend, I, you know, I got invited to his house, uh, drank vodka with him. uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, uh, yeah, he and um, he was very, very, uh, very gracious, and um, very generous with passing on his, his knowledge so getting back to the two h's the the humor and humanity i think that's what what walt saw in him and why walt brought him over to imagineering and um i mean if you look at what the what like, i think one of the first things he touched was the jungle cruise and if you look at the jungle cruise pre mark davis it was just it was more like a which it was they they based it on the, the true nature adventure kind of things it was very you know, there's a lion, there's there's elephants, but Mark went back and added this sense of humor to it, you know, putting putting the characters putting the animals in this in this regard, you know, in poses and stage them in a way that told a story, because he was a master storyteller. So I really I always looked to Mark and whatever I did, I always was trying to find what was that, that human nature or that humorous thing that connected with people and would elicit some kind of emotion, usually the emotion of humor. But you really had to I really, I really look looking back, I think I was kind of successful in that all the things I did, and if I wasn't drawing it or designing it myself, I always made sure the people that were, you know, I was directing them in a way that would get that that humor and that humanity and things because I think that's that's the real hallmark of what Mark did and I think what makes Disney great and what I tried to infuse in my work.
0: Yeah, that it makes so much sense. And it's certainly something that I know he was very famous for. And I love that summarizing it with those two H's, the the humor and humanity is a great way to, to summarize that. Um, one of the, the, I guess, the parallels that you and Mark both had were or was the sort of transition from animation into Imagineering and having worked on both. And not every Imagineer, um, I'd say most, especially in the present day, were not necessarily animators um, before they were Imagineers, although they might have been interested in the subject. Um, You know, you spent almost a decade in animation before making that move. Um, Before we get into some of the specific projects that you worked on, what were some of the lessons that you felt you learned from animation that um, helped you in Imagineering, or what are some of the parallels that you saw at Disney mm. between animation and Imagineering?
1: Um, well, it comes down to it, it's always about communication, communicating an idea, um, and like I said, communicating an idea with warmth and humor, or some kind, or some element of uh, emotional, um, you know, gravity to it that connects people to what what you were doing. So. Um, There were a lot of things, I guess, you know, in animation, you had to, well, first, I had to learn how to draw and draw a lot, um, and be able to communicate, you know, with a drawing. Um, And in animation, you know, at least in the old days, when we drew with pencil on paper, um, you were drawing It was 24 frames a second, sometimes you would do do it on they called it on twos, where you were just doing a drawing every other uh, every other drawing, um, because of persistence of vision, you know, the eye wouldn't pick up that there weren't twenty-four drawings there. Um, but what it taught you was a number of things. One, the um, that things had to be clear and readable. You know, and you know, you had one twenty-fourth of a second to you know to communicate a pose an idea. Um, and I think the parallel in in imagineering was usually you know in a ride or. Even in a lot of the shows and things, um, you have to communicate an idea quickly. Uh, I think even more so at Imagineering because um, people are more distracted. In an animated film, you're sitting in a theater or you're sitting in your living room watching on the screen. And that's your sole focus. Whereas, you know, in the theme park, there's lots of distractions. So um, I always kept that in mind about really making sure, asking myself and the people that worked with me, I always said there create a hierarchy of importance when we were designing things. Like, what is the number one story idea that we're trying to communicate here? Perhaps I'll use an example of a scene in uh, Mystic Manor, for example. You know, well, the first thing is the monkey is opening the 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 magic music box, so that has to be number one. So make sure that's lit properly, staged properly. People know that's what they're supposed to be looking at. Then you know, what are the things around it that supports it that again, maybe draw it pushes your eye to it or creates an atmosphere around it that, you know, that supports that that's that idea. And then usually the third thing was what are the other environmental things, the music, the lighting, sometimes those have a higher, a stronger hierarchy, but really thinking you know and that was all going back to animation understanding you know that i have one scene i got to communicate these things in the scene and how am i going to make sure they're going to communicate clearly and with strength and with emotion
0: that makes so much sense it's about that communication like you said it's about the story and it's 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 difficult i know in a in especially a well a real world space to help people draw their eye to a very specific thing but yeah using lighting and music and all these types of cues i know that Is a lot easier to do.
1: And by the way, getting back to Mark, he was the master at that. I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean to me is a masterclass in staging and the hierarchy of staging. You know, knowing where to put things so that that even though you know there's there's twenty things in a scene, it never looks like a cacophony of stuff. You your eye always knows how to move through it the The main story point is always clearly communicated. um I must. I must have. When I finally, I got to tell you one of the biggest thrills when when I was, finally got to Imagineering was to actually walk through Pirates when there was no water in there. that was awesome. Under rehab and just I was like, wow, that was the. Like, <laughs> and to see how clever they were with the the way it was constructed too. In fact. Um, that was an also a big lesson that i carried and i i would in fact when when i started doing other projects with you know bigger teams i would say you know go down and ride pirates like the fact that there's no visible light sources in pirates that you know we the a lot of the rides evolved to this place where you know they became too cavalier about, you know, showing light fixtures everywhere, or being able to see the catwalks. And to me, that just breaks the the believability it does breaks down the believability. Whereas you go through pirates, it's a sky above you there. aren't. Where are the they were just so clever about using, you know, wall sconces with a candle or or just hiding the lights in a way you never saw it. just brilliant again, a map there that that is a masterclass in everything that works great about a Disney ride.
0: I agree. I always say in terms of favorite classics, a lot of people gravitate towards the Haunted Mansion, which I know is another masterclass as well, but I've always said Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, yeah. And I would love to have had that experience of walking <laughs> through with uh, with no water, or just kind of walking through and seeing everything. Um, I think it wasn't even until my maybe 10th or 15th time writing it that I actually started to look around and see what else was there because my eye was always focused, like you said earlier, on exactly what the imaginaries yes. wanted us to look yeah, at. Yeah. Um, um, but then even R-A. when you do look around, you see other things are there too, regardless.
1: Yeah. yeah. And not to underplay him, but Claude Coates as well as Mark, because Claude knew You know, he created the stage for for Mark to put the characters on and the stage, you know, putting a character under an arch or, you know, putting a tree a certain way. I mean, and and how those also work to help focus your eyes. So it was really the combination of those two brilliant minds that really defined, you know, great Disney, you know, ride staging
0: for sure. Speaking of projects like this, so I know one of your big projects that you worked on was Toontown. We alluded to it earlier, and this was an area where you really were almost literally taking animation into the 3D world or into the real world, uh, thinking about Mickey and where the gang might live. Um, And I know this was a, a, you know, it's a challenging project to think about where or how do you take a, a a cartoon world something that does feel like uh you know a lot of the the animated films are meant to feel more like real world places but a toontown is is really like a fictitious environment and everyone knows that it's not really meant to be a real place so how did you go about thinking um or taking that concept of this this sort of fictitious animated world and making it into a, a real believable um walk through space
1: um you know i think once again i i I leaned on my animation understanding when we um when we got the assignment to you know create this cartoon world of course the first thing we did was watch a bunch of mickey shorts and we quickly realized that the world the place really played second fiddle to the characters and the action that was happening with the characters in the story, which was great because people love characters and and the emotion of the characters. That was important. But we knew the characters would be there in, in you know, in the walk around characters, but there was never a guarantee that they would always be there. But we wanted the the place to have the the influence of the characters and to feel like an animated film. And that meant a sense of movement to things. Um, so the houses, we kind of actually exaggerated the, um, the, we called it the wonkiness of the, the whole thing, you know, where there was really no straight, there was no, no right angles and no straight lines anywhere in the land. And that was mostly to give that sense of movement that we got in the cartoons. Um, and then actually we were, we were developing Toontown at the same time they were developing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Where they really took the the buildings and the environments, and they they did bring them to life much the same way we were trying to do. Um, they were doing it in animation, two <laughs> d animation, where we had to use concrete and steel and uh, you know and make these things, you know, real buildings. Um, so that um that understanding of, you know, putting a like in animation, you always look for a line of action through a character. I mean, if you look at all the houses, there's some kind of line of action through it. And then um, infusing everything, release the houses and the neighborhoods with um, with aspects of the character's personalities, both the kind of house that they would live in based on their personality, but then actually actually having um, physical elements that related back to the characters, either the colors the characters always wore, Mickey wearing yellow, red and black, you know, goofy with his little green hat and we would make sure all those things so that even if you didn't know if goofy wasn't standing there you would look at his house and go oh that's goofy's house or you know looking and go oh that's where mickey would live um so yeah lots of lessons from animation um brought over to to help us in, uh, in, in, in putting that project together. And you know, again, a lot of it was a we were, we were young and naive. And we, and sometimes it's better to know what you don't know and what you can't do. Because, um, you know, we just did, we made those rounds, we did it. And fortunately, we had amazing, amazing technical people. I was very fortunate because um, they were just finishing up uh, Disneyland Paris. So great rock carvers, Jolt Horme and and uh, John Olson and um, all the, just all these people who had gone over there and really really honed the craft. They didn't, you know, they had taken what had been done and just made it better. And just as coincidence would have it, as you know, the the universe was smiling down on me. All those people came in and you know lent their their genius and expertise to to building Toontown.
0: That's amazing. And, uh, you know, calling specifically out the, the, because I never really thought about this, the fact that when you walked through the houses, you didn't really need to know who, they didn't need to be there. You just kind of understood who lived there. And I think as a kid, I remember walking through Toontown and walking through Mickey's house. You knew, uh, like you said, that I I knew even as a kid um, that that was Mickey's house. And I think the colors in particular really did play a big role in that because I saw the, like you said, like the red and the yellow and the white. Yeah, and I said, exactly. well, obviously, this is Mickey's house, the same color as what he wears. And um, <laughs> yeah. so, very clever and simple, um, but like well thought out execution of, of the homes. Um, now that you're speaking about it, I can see how that really came to life. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm gonna jump around a bit because I'm gonna okay. going tie. Jump. I'm gonna tie some things together at the end. Okay. But going to jump around. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, I want to jump way ahead to Mystic Manor because you brought it up earlier, and I I do think that this is a a, a sort of modern, um, you know, masterclass is into a big word, but it is a masterfully developed attraction. Um, and although I haven't personally been to Hong Kong Disneyland, just the, the footage I've seen and the, re- the reviews I've heard and from people talking about, it, I know it's such a an iconic attraction. And of course, knowing the history and its ties to Haunted Mansion uh, is, is pretty impressive as well. Um and I, I know that you know it builds upon the the some of the elements of the Haunted Mansion, some of underlying foundations, but it it creates and it, it developed a story that was more culturally relevant for Hong Kong. Um, can you discuss a little bit about the, the development of the story for Mystic Point and Mystic Manner?
1: Um, well, we were challenged. I, I have to thank our, um, our partners in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government, um, at least at the time, the tourist commissioner. Um, she was very, very... Um, vocal about wanting to create something unique for Hong Kong. They really wanted bragging rights. They knew that they had they had the smallest Disneyland Park uh, of all the parks at that at that moment um, when when it opened. Um, That was during the uh, the Paul Pressler era where, you know, everything had to be as they 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 would they tried to spend as little as they could and still pass it off as a Disney attraction or a Disney park. And I mean, it. it, well, I, you know, we they had to go back and fix California Adventure, and we had to go back and add, you know, an additional 25% to, to um, Hong Kong. Um, So that model obviously did not work well. So we were, we were challenged we needed and we, we didn't have a a huge budget, we had a a generous budget. Uh, We knew we had to deliver three lands. There was a first the thought of delivering just one big land, and then um, somebody brought in are the kind of the competition in Hong Kong is this place called Ocean Park, which is kind of like their local park it's been there for years and years it's kind of a mix of a sea world you know, six Flagsy kind of thing. Um, and on their on their guide map they there was like everything was accounted for even trash cans were accounted <laughs> for on the map like something to do here's a drinking fountain <laughs> so it really just played up the point that we really needed to get a lot of stuff or at least make make the guests feel like they were getting a lot that's why we chose to do the three lands and we did you know toy story land which had four attractions in it you know four rides in it um, and <clears throat> we tried to get a lot lots of area development and walk through things. And the last of the three, but we also knew there were there was no big um, other than small world, Hong Kong had no big indoor dark, you know, a big scale dark ride, they had, they had Winnie the Pooh. And they had, like I said, small world. So we we really needed that quintessential Disney dark ride. And initially, they wanted us just to take small world um excuse me take the uh the haunt the haunted mansion from the other parks and put it in there but again our our hong kong partners reminded us that the chinese has have a little different relationship with the afterlife and the thought of the happy singing ghosts wasn't going to work there um so we kind of expanded on the story that we started creating at um tokyo disney sea with the the society of adventurers and explorers Sea and uh came up with this new character um you know lord henry mystic who's uh actually knows harrison high tower who built the <laughs> the the uh the tower of terror in in, uh, in tokyo so um yeah being able to t- so we started with that that storyline and that premise um and then um it was really about you know again, building a story that had emotional connection to the guests. And, um, and we looked at a lot of the the, the literature from uh, that part of the world, you know, and um, the story of the, um, the journey to the West with uh, the monkey king. So it was kind of a natural thing to, to use the monkey plus, they're, they're comical, they have human attributes to them that people could relate to, again, always trying to find that the connection back to the human condition. Um, And then just creating a simple story again, that, you know, Lord Henry M- mystic found this music box. He was with the little monkey, they were told not to open it, the monkey opens it, and you find out that it, you know, turns inanimate objects, inanimate objects, and just how that then affects things, some things when they become alive or good, some things like you know, dangerous weapons and things in a dungeon are not so good when they come alive. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's a bit of it's a redemption story. And the monkey just has to redeem himself at the end, because he realizes he's created all this, all this havoc by opening up the music box. So, so there's a little there's a moral to the story and, but it's a simple story. And I think, you know, for, for the theme park, you know, again, I think you have to and I think that's the reason why IP is so popular, why people like IP, because so much of the heavy lifting is done for you. You know, if people have already seen the movie, they know the characters, they've heard the music, and so um, those all become you know trigger points to to just remind you of what you saw in the theater or what you saw on, on television. So not having that luxury, we you know we had to depend more on stereotypes. You know, the 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 curious monkey the yeah the the bad things the good things you know just taking more of a black and white and simple approach to it um i again because you know people didn't have that frame of reference and we we wanted to make sure it communicated clearly and strongly but mostly be really entertaining you know
0: it's and it's it definitely comes across that way too um and uh you when thinking about the story itself, it's, it's, um, I love the the way that it's told in in sort of a narrative fashion, um, as you describe the, the whole story of it. I, I just love it. It's, you almost could read it in a book or a short story. It's just something that is a captivating redemption story. In Imagineering and in a real-world attraction environment, what I also find to be really fascinating is not so much the narrative that's developed, but also the way that the story is told by the type of attraction. And this is a trackless ride that was you know developed for mystic Manor. How do you go about deciding what type of conveyance or what type of attraction is fit for the story? or do you start with that and then decide on the story that fits the vehicle or fits the the ride system?
1: Uh, I, th- I think you kind of you hit you already kind of hit on it. Um, you know, for an attraction like this where we wanted to have a clear narrative and tell, a story with a beginning a middle and an end and had a you know kind of a dramatic arch arch to it um you know the the original um people movers like in the um that people mover the um
0: that the omni mover system omni movers right. yes. thank you
1: thank you thank you omni mover uh what was brilliant about those is that they used it like you know to to turn you to to point you and say look at this and then they could turn you away from things, and they could start to set something up, do kind of a setup and a payoff. Um, so it was a really good storytelling vehicle, you know, for 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 its time. Well, you know, fast forward twenty years, twenty five years later, thirty years later, we now have you know this wireless vehicle technology, which I first played with a little bit with Winnie the Pooh in Tokyo. And it was great because you could start and stop, turn. Um, I mean, you really were able to control where you wanted people to look, how long you wanted them to look, how quickly you could move away. So, um, and getting back to what I was saying earlier, knowing that we were going to be trying to tell this story that wasn't based on an IP and wanted to be able to make sure that our story points were clearly communicated, it just seemed like the logical choice of ride vehicle. To use for that that particular attraction,
0: yeah, and it makes sense. It just when you ride it, it, it uh, not that I've been on that, but watching watching it, I know for people who uh, have been on it as well, the the ride system just seems to fit seamlessly with the whole experience, um, like and, with the omnibovers too. And,
1: and and it you know it's magical because a there's no track. Yes, <laughs> and um, we were able to create in in a couple instances. Um, different pathways through the attraction, because you know you always think about a Disney Park, repeat visitation, you want people to come back. I remember um, first time I went on the the haunted mansion, as a kid, just feeling overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, I have to go back like 20 more times in order to digest all that to get it to see it all and understand all that was going on, which I always felt was a hallmark of the attractions. But but never like, as I said earlier, like with pirates and haunted mansion, it was never a cacophony of things. It was just, it was this huge, you know, buffet, this banquet of, you know, visual delights that was, you know, perfectly presented um and so we wanted to kind of do the the same thing with mystic but you know have fun with allowing people to see maybe like we had one big um the the dungeon scene that you went through a couple different ways or there were there were these two rooms where um these portraits came alive and we we wanted people to see those from a couple different ways so the ride vehicle was perfect not only for the storytelling aspect of it but for you know Delivering that Disney ride experience that you wanted to go on multiple times.
0: That's true, um, and that's that's a that's a great aspect of the the attraction as well. You mentioned uh, another attraction we had to talk about, which is over at Tokyo Disney Sea with the a Tower of Terror that's developed for Tokyo Disney. It's certainly the most impressive from a from a pure like architectural and art art point of view. It's. The detail in the building is just amazing. Um, but it also has, at least at the time, it was the most unique story for a Tower of Terror attraction. Um, how did you go about uh, thinking about the the story for Tower of Terror in Tokyo?
1: Um, well, again, it was about um, understanding the local... Um, culture and uh, in the case of the Japanese, they had no reference to the the Twilight Zone, the Rod Sterling twi- Twilight Zone. You know, they they never played in in Japan. Um, so at least at the time, this was before the the one at California Adventure was turned into Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, the other two were both based on Rod Sterling's the Twilight Zone, which I thought was great, and I loved I loved that, but. Um, they wanted kind of the same kind of a some kind of supernatural story. Um, So that was one criteria. Uh, It had to live in American waterfront part of Tokyo Disney Sea and getting back to your your earlier comment about the um, the ornate and beautiful nature of the architecture that was just trying to live up to everything that had been established. I mean, the bar is raised really high at Tokyo Disney. (laughs) Sea. Yeah, Uh, I I did a little i did some work on the initial park um but not in that part of the park but really a hallmark of that park is the level of detail i don't think there's any other disney park maybe disneyland paris comes close but i don't think there's any other park that has the some same level of richness and layers of architectural storytelling in everything in the park so we had to live up to that especially and they want and knowing that it was going to be this giant building And um, there's the SS Columbia that's next to it. And then it's in the New York area that has very, very, the Broadway theater is just adjacent to it, which is another big edifice. So um, it really had to live up to its setting, both in terms of the storytelling to feel like it's, uh, you know, a big hotel in New York, by the waterfront makes sense. So we, so that kind of guided our a little of the, the physical design of it. And then the whole idea of a hotel in New York was, then became part of the storytelling, too. And then, as, as I mentioned earlier, we came up with this character of of um, Harrison Hightower. Um, but unlike um, Lord Henry Mystic, who was, uh, you know, a more honest and, <laughs> and uh, trustworthy individual, we painted uh, Harrison Hightower as more of a, you know, a bad guy, you know, he really so so that when the the whole table turns on him and he becomes a victim to his own his own theft, um, it would make sense from a from a story story point. So um, that's how that whole thing developed. It was it was a question of coming up with a story that made sense in that part of the park, um, expanding again on the, the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. Um, and then having a story too that you know ha- created some motivation for you getting in an elevator that drops.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a thrilling experience. And for again, those who I know who have done that and done all the versions of Tower of Terror, it's often quoted as the the most favorite. Just the <clears throat> even not understanding a word of Japanese, you totally get the story and you understand it completely. And it's just such a thrilling and. Um, Amazing experience! I know Joe Rody fans also enjoy um, walking <laughs> through the experience as well.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Joe Joe had a lot of fun with that. I mean, he and we also, we we kind of fashioned the character a little after Joe. You know, the world adventurer going out and you know finding artifacts. In fact, when I first started, when I moved over to Imagineering from from uh, from uh, animation. Um imaginary had just started to kind of ramp up again because it was right after Epcot and at the beginning of the Disney decade. Um, Disney decade being when uh Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came in and you know really wanted to, you know, they built the studio tour and the cruise lines and you know, all the Disneyland Paris. So um, it was really a great time of growth there. But the um, the ranks of Imagineering were small, and we're starting to grow. So when I started, I didn't even have an office, they just put me in the model shop, which was cool, because in the model shop, they were actually they had model makers, they had special effects in one corner, and then they had show designers in there, because the company had gotten so small. Um, so it was great. I remember going in there and, and like two desks down for me was Joe Rody's desk. And uh, he had just started collecting all the weird artifacts and things for the now defunct Adventurers Club (laughs) at uh, Walt Disney World, which was Pleasure Island at the time. So I guess that was always in the back of my head, seeing Joe coming in with his boxes of things that – you know, he had gotten either from swamp meets or where all the his his travels or whatever. Uh, so, uh, like I said, that was always in the back of my head. So he was he was like the natural to be our our world collect world traveler and collector of antiquities. He's <laughs> and, like... he the part, and he looked the part too. Joe has a you know he has a great intense you know look <laughs> to it. so all things just work together perfectly.
0: He does seem to have that perfect fit in the Society of Adventurers and Explorers. If it were a real organization, I feel like he would absolutely be a part of it yes. in one way or another. <laughs> um one, uh, one last project to, to discuss or at least at a holistic level as we kind of tap through a few of your, your big projects are the Disney Cruise Line ships because um, I know you did quite a work on those as well. And I've spoken with another Imagineer who's also worked on Disney Cruise Line. Um, Theron Skies did a bunch of work for the Cruise Lines as well. Um, and he, he had shared some thoughts about this, but I'm curious to ask you too, how does it feel to or how does it different, I should say, to work on a cruise ship? as compared to a a theme park? Or are there any differences at all?
1: Um, Well, I think the the big difference, the main difference, let me talk, well, let me first talk about what's common and that's the Disney brand. As soon as you put the name Disney on it, that means it's about, it's a family experience with storytelling and has to deliver on the expectation of what guests know and love about Disney. Disney so that's what's that's the common the the thread between I guess and any Disney product you know it has it's the brand it has to live up to the brand expectation Um, the different with the cruise ship um, I always talked a lot about the form of the storytelling in the rides and in the theme parks it's short form storytelling most rides are you know three to seven minutes long, maybe, you know, 15 minutes long, the even the live shows might be 20 minutes long, you know, because there's a lot of things that they they want to give you a number of things to do in a day. So it feels like you get a lot of va- value. Uh, and most people are only there for a day, maybe if they go to Walt Disney World, they may be there for three days or a week, but then they divide that up between multiple parks. But most of the most of the experiences are short form. So all of a sudden now we have people that are captive on these ships. And we had to think about well, the minimum they might be on that ship is three days, maybe five days, maybe 12 days. And so, how do we think about the way we deliver the Disney brand and modulate it across multiple days and across multiple venues? And at least at the time when we were doing, because I worked both on the um the magic and the wonder, and just a show design capacity before I was given the assignment of actually leading the the creative for the 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 fantasy and the dream, or the dream and the fantasy. Um, and we were very sensitive to understanding, and it goes again all the way back to the magic and the wonder that um, we had people that came with various interests in Disney, and we didn't want to drown them in Disney. Um, and understanding, again, that they were going to be there for multiple days and trying to modulate, you know, of course, the kids areas are full on Disney, where we're taking them into, you know, a little Toy Story play area, or, you know, it it was full on, full on Disney. But, but we also wanted areas like the adult area where adults could go and get a little actually get a little respite from that. And still have the charm and the storytelling, you know, that Disney is known for, but not necessarily, um, you know, connected to an IP that that Disney owns. So that to me was the big difference really understanding, you know, how we made the various Disney stories and um, characters where we put them how we infuse them into the experience but always with that understanding that you know people were going to be there for multiple days there were going to be different levels of engagement you know by various age age groups of the family as well um you know they always talked about how the disney ships were quote purpose built was the the line that marketing liked us to use purpose built meaning we knew our audience we knew it was a family audience cuz disney really created family cruising. That's what we really defined when we were doing the, uh, the, the magic and the wonder. Um, so really understanding your audience, and then designing something specific for the audience. So there's something for the kids, there's something for the adults, and then there's something for the family.
0: That makes so much sense especially thinking about it in terms of the the short form and then the <clears throat> having that captive audience i mean they're literally on the ship not going anywhere for a few days so how do you keep them both the adults and the kids feeling entertained and not have the adults feel overwhelmed by being fully immersed completely in a yeah. disney story all the time um some do want that but not everyone wants that so yeah,
1: and and, and for those it. who want it it's there and for yeah. those who Want less of that? It's also there. At least that was our philosophy on the on the dream and the fantasy.
0: Absolutely. A um, couple wrap up questions that we've talked about. Sure. We could we could talk for I know hours about all your projects and deep dive about each. But as we're sort of tasting each one of them piece by piece, um, I feel like I know this answer already just based on our conversation. But I'm going to ask it anyway because it's a favorite question I like to ask Imagineers. Um, if you could have worked on any Disney attraction, past or present, that you didn't get the chance to work on, what would you pick and why? Any
1: Disney attraction, past or present. Um. Wow, well, you know, only only because it was it was and is in some ways still. I mean, second to Pirates and those big scale attractions, Peter Pan, um, you know, it was it, for that sh- for a, a tiny little short dark ride. It's got so much magic. And just the fact that you fly <laughs> with Peter Pan over London, and you fly to Never, Never Land, Um, You know, and it's in whether or not you've seen the movie Peter Pan, it's still a magical experience which was which was always a good lesson for me to remember that ip fades you know that movies come out they're super popular but you know five ten years after that movie comes out maybe some of them become evergreen you know and will remain popular but the core of the experience the thing that you move the guests through has to stand on its own, either as as a pure magical experience, or, or being so clear in the way they communicate the experience that you know, you you get this, the story points, but in the end, they have to they have to stand on their own, you can't depend on the fact that, you know, that people have seen that film or 100% familiar with it. So just the idea of flying over, you meet Peter Pan, come on, come on, everybody, let's go. And you're flying over, over London, and then over this magical world with the the, the moon above you and the, and the rainbows. It's just, you know, it's, it's pure Disney magic. So that and and because it was it was based on an animated film and they 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 clearly you know brought the characters to life and in very simple ways i mean that that was you know pre real animatronics and you know it was just all about a great great theatrical ride through
0: it's amazing how often that Attraction comes up in in that question or others when I ask about it because it, it, there must be something uh, that you you know you just mentioned about the sort of whimsical magic of the experience that has stood the test of time because it still gets significant weights in, in Walt Disney World and Disneyland um, and yeah every time I ride it it's it's just so you're just filled with so much joy of the experience of flying over London and through Neverland. Yeah.
1: I know they're they're doing an updated, more expansive version now in Tokyo, and I'll be anxious to see what what they did with it there, and hopefully, you know, maintain the the core of DNA from the original and the magic of that original as well.
0: I hope so too. We'll have to see what they uh, what they come up with. Um, my last question is about the present because you, although you retired, uh, you know. About five, six years ago now, you certainly have not retired from work, just retired from Disney. Um, you mentioned you still, you know, you still draw, you still play music, which is amazing. And you also happen to do a ton of work for your own company as well. So, what sort of inspired you to start up um, Lentisaro Creative? And what are, what do you all do at that, at an organization?
1: Well, you know, I, um, I, the things that are interesting me most, right? I think it's a really interesting time. There's so many, new um, experiences that are, are popping up, some good, some not so good. Um, and what's evolving in the parks. Um, I was fortunate to have a really good run at Disney and get a, most of anything I designed got built, which which kind of spoiled me. Um, but I just amassed also a lot of of knowledge about, you know, communicating ideas. And, um, and so I'm actually finding myself more attracted to non theme park um, work, and I still get quite a bit, you know, of work doing theme parks in you know, various parts of the world. Um, and that's fun. But the things that really interest me is uh, applying the the understanding of how to communicate ideas with emotional connection to anything. Um, I got involved in the UX world, user experience world, um, a number of years back, actually, right after I left Disney, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at this conference in um, Austria, um, with this company called World Usability Congress. And um, when they contacted me, I had to be honest with the, the organizers, Guy Hannes. I said, Hannes, thank you for the invite. But I I don't know what UX is. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, you know, Joe, you've been doing it your entire career. He said, it's anything user experience and how people engage with things. So um, yeah, I found myself consulting now um, with people like, like Whirlpool, helping them create, you know, how they connect, you know, with people, you know, things like appliances, but how do you you create an experience with communicating about those that then connects emotionally with, with people. I I recently consulted with this company who does, um, who does salmon farming, and how they you know, how they want to, they want to expand their the way they communicate about that, and the things that they want to build restaurants and, and things and such. So um, those things, because, um, like I said, I've done the theme park stuff, and it's fun, and I still enjoy doing it. But it's, it's fun to go into an arena where, where first I have to learn stuff I wanted. That was the thing that was great about imaginary every project was like going to school, you had to continue to learn. I think it keeps, you know, as I'm getting older, I want to keep my brain <laughs> sharp. And every time I get, you know, called up by somebody to come in and give a, a a talk or to consult, you know, I got to go back to school for a little while, which is always great. But Um, that's been very, very rewarding for me to apply those all the great things i learned at Disney um, to a world that's really I mean, when you think about everything is about experience now, whether it's on your cell phone, whether it's in some either brick and mortar shopping experience or an online experience. I mean, it's all about that experience, you know, and how, and the people are hungry to understand, you know, how to, you know, how to connect people with experiences on a deeper level. And, um, you know, with more resonance, because they understand that that means, you know, good business, because people want to come back and, and be a part of whatever that thing is.
0: That's amazing. It is so great that you're doing that because what we want in the world more than anything else is more Imagineers helping us figure out how to make everything as great as Disney. <laughs> so, um, <laughs>
1: yeah. well, I'm, I'm still out there trying to do that. Carrying it on and, and Hopefully I can do it for a while longer now.
0: Absolutely. Um, well for anyone who's who's listening who's interested um definitely i'll i'll post the links to the uh to your website and to your instagram because you've been posting I, I love seeing all your content that you share from Thank you posted you. about like the lost um the uh the, the muppets land that never got built which i found to be fascinating yeah. and the uh you know some quotes from uh, and philosophies from from your imagineering days, and so it's it's a great source of inspiration. So I'll I'll be sure oh, to plug that as well. Thank you very
1: much. Thank you um, very much.
0: But Joe, it's been a, a lot of fun chatting with you. And so, like I said, we we kind of just like touched the surface of a lot of different things, just to mm-hmm. show how expansive. And we we barely scratch the surface of your career because you've done so much beyond this list. But thanks for sharing some of these stories with me and with the the listeners of the podcast
1: thank you man and uh, you then you said early on you wanted to try to ask some new and different questions and you did Uh, (laughs) and thank you for doing all the homework that you did and uh, it was a great interview i really had a good time
0: With that, we close out episode 126 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you once again to Joe for coming onto the show and sharing some of his thoughts about Walt Disney Imagineering and sharing his insights about his career, talking about some of the many projects that he helped to develop. I was, in particular, very excited to chat about Mystic Manor and Tokyo Disney Sea's version of Tower of Terror. But I want to turn this conversation over to you and hear. Which of Joe's many attractions that we discussed in this episode or beyond is your favorite? You can send me your answers and feedback as always in so many different ways. I would encourage you to, of course, reach out on social media. You can follow Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast. On Twitter at Imagineer News. And to have a place to chat not just with me, but also with other members of our listener community, you can head to our Facebook group, which is called the Imagination, also called the Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, to talk about this topic and all other topics related to all things Disney. If you don't already subscribe to the show, of course, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify. Google Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher, iHeartMedia, or any other podcast app. That'll ensure that you're the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And if you have a minute or 30 seconds or however long it takes to leave us a rating and a review, in particular in Apple Podcasts, that does a lot to help us out. I want to thank the more than 600 of you who have left us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. I do read each and every review that I get. It's a great way to share the word about Imagine Your Podcast for anyone who helps to or who discovers the show. It lets them know what they can expect, perhaps a favorite episode to start with, and leave any thoughts you might have about the show there. And thanks again to those of you who have left us a rating and a review in the past. But the best thing you could do for the show is very simple, and that's just to share it. Whether you share out this episode with Joe Lan Cicero or any other episode of the show, the podcast as a whole, our social media channels. And no matter how you share it, whether you share it out on social media or simply talk about it with your friends and family who love all things Disney, that helps us to expand our optimistic, family-friendly Disney fan community. And I want to thank those of you who continue to share the podcast each and every week. We have a new episode of the show. I do greatly appreciate it. And if you would like to take your love of Imagineer Podcast to the next level, I would definitely encourage you to look into our Patreon group, which is over at patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. You can also find a link to that location at ImagineerPodcast.com and in the show notes of this episode. That's a way that you can help to support the show financially and in return, you get exclusive content, benefits, rewards. There's so much that's available by becoming a Patreon member. Examples of things you get include access to a private Facebook community, my close friends list on Instagram, bonus podcast episodes just for members, as well as a ton of exclusive content that's posted on Patreon. You get access to private virtual events, weekly Disney Plus watch parties, which is probably my favorite benefit, and so much more. Of, co- of course, these uh, conditions and, and terms and conditions and perks are subject to change depending on when you're listening to the show. So the best way to find out what's currently available and what tiers are offered is by, again, heading to patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast. You can also send me a message or an email at matt at imagineerpodcast.com. If you have any questions, and of course, if you have any feedback or ways that you would like to help to improve this show, feel free to reach out to me with suggestions for topics you'd like to hear or things you'd like to see within this community. I do read all emails and we'll get back to you as soon as I can. And I appreciate those of you who continue to support the show in any way that you can. Last but not least, I want to encourage you, as always, to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever they might be. Take those steps today to make your dreams a reality. And remember, as always, that inspiring quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast.